So, I'm Laura Kuzno, and welcome to Just a Music Podcast, where I, Laura Kuzno, tell you about some music history, how it relates to the world around us, and hopefully introduce you to some new tunes. This show is theoretically for everyone, but I will swear when it comes down to it, and sometimes we may need to talk about some very sensitive topics, so your weans might want to sit this one out. Now, before I start this week's episode, I want to make a disclaimer. Uh, as as you may have heard last week, uh, this week I want to cover slave and gospel music. And uh, you might think to yourself, well, Laura, you've described yourself as whiter than sour cream on rice, and that's that's why you didn't want to do an episode on North American native musics. What's so different about this topic? And, like, you're right. You're right as hell. I'm still whiter than sour cream on rice, potentially even more so now, because uh, it's getting darker earlier and cooler outside, so any bit of the summer sun I had is just <laughs> gone, babe. Uh, so the difference, though, is that I'm actually able to find information about slave and gospel music, and not just that, but, like, there's a lot of sources written on these musics written by, you know, black people, or people who for whom this is part of their heritage, which is great. So I feel a lot more comfortable doing an episode like that, as opposed to with native musics, where, like, I got a lot of sources, but they were written by, like, white people for the primary curiosity of white people, so... I'm actually going to be able to use sources by black people for everyone, which uh, will be able to provide us with a more accurate, less whitewashed version of how this music came to be, uh, which I am much more comfortable with, to be honest. Um, I would also like to let you guys know that there will be a sensitive content warning partway through this, because we're going to be talking about some really hard topics this week. So, like, themes include sexual and non-sexual violence, as well as just all manner of unpleasantness in general. So I'll issue the warning again just before I get into it, so you so you know. Um, okay. So, also just in general, uh, my allergies have decided to kick my ass today. Uh, I've been sneezing, like I've been running full speed through a perfume department and just sneezing for shits and gigs, and uh, my nose is leakier than a colander, so forgive me if my vocal quality dips at any point in time, because um, it's rough, boy. It's rough. We living in the rough right now. But to get into it, so slavery. When we talk about slave musics, we have to talk about slavery. And this might make some of you uncomfortable because uh, it should. <laughs> it really should. Uh, slavery, as I'm going to talk about uh, in a whole minute, is one of the most abominable power structures that we can think of. It's something that there's really no comparison for because it's very much just hell on earth. And for some of us listening, you may have had family that directly participated in the slave trade or in practices of owning slaves. Personally, I'm not all too sure about my family's own history and, and involvement in it, but knowing that I would have had white family members in the American South during the appropriate time and that some of them did fight for the South during the Civil War, there's a distinct possibility that they participated in slavery. And is it uncomfortable? Absolutely. Like, I, I, it definitely makes me uncomfortable, but does that mean I get my back up about it? Absolutely not. Like, I know what they did is wrong, I take no pride in it, and I personally try to educate myself on the struggles of black people, that the struggles that they still face, struggle that, the struggles that they historically faced, and also ways uh, that I can, I can be of help, whether that's telling people about systemic racism, like we're going to do today a little bit, or more physical things, like helping to practice in demonstrations. But even if they didn't, uh, there is still an almost certainty that they supported it and benefited from the institution of slavery. So benefiting from slavery and the systems that it created is still something that as white people, you know, or, you know, not even necessarily white people, but white passing people, uh, that we benefit from, uh, which is an uncomfortable fact for many of us. Even those who like to think of ourselves as like paragons of equality and don't see race, uh, still, we still benefit from it. This is not to say that each of us uh, get a payout or something for some fucking, you know, white person allowance every month with an attachment being like, thanks for beating wider than a snowstorm on the moon. But uh, what I mean is that we as white people will have more opportunity and face less prejudice in our lives, especially in North America, as we proceed with 
living. So this means that we aren't going to be passed over for jobs, uh, we won't be turned down for scholarship, we won't be unfairly targeted by law enforcement, and we won't have our homes devalued because we live in them on the basis of our skin color, which are things that still happen to black people and people of visible color today. So uh, for sure, a lot of us may still struggle despite coming from this type of advantage. Like I come from a family that didn't have money growing up and definitely still doesn't have money now. So for us, you know, it can seem like a slap in the face to say that we have any privilege at all, but that doesn't make it any less true. In fact, for many of those things, if you are white, you actually stand at some advantage because of the stereotypes that still exist about white people as well. So it is for these reasons that things like affirmative action and Black Lives Matter movements exist because black people and people of color in general still are treated as lesser, lesser North America and many other parts of the world. The thing is, is I don't know how to tell you to deal with the uncomfortableness that all of this is going to inspire in you. Uh, it's a hard thing to reckon with yourself, really, like especially if you're still struggling economically, socially, etc. Uh, but I can certainly tell you that the answer is not to get your back up about it and start blaming black people for it, because that's that's just not right, you know. Uh, best I can tell you is that we're stronger together as a, as humanity. We're stronger together than apart. We live in societies for a reason, which was to help support one another, and it is easier to live amongst people with and help one another than it is you know, to live without people and have no help at any point in time. And if we make that society better for others, we're also making society better for ourselves. So maybe try there. Like, how can you help to better understand people and help people understand people? Because even understanding can make a world of difference. So slavery and slave music. Most of us have some idea with what slavery is. Uh, for any listeners in the United States, it might be a real shit understanding of it depending on the state that you primarily were educated in growing up. So for you and for people who may who maybe grew up in places around the world where they didn't get a full education on it, we're going to cover some basic uh, history of slavery. So slavery is a form of forced labor that has existed for thousands of years. Uh, what I'm talking about with slave music in this episode, however, is the music that was created by African Americans in the southern United States. So slavery in the United States specifically. We're going to start in the year 1619, a full 157 years before the establishment of America as a country proper, by the way, with the arrival of 20-some-odd African captives who arrived in the British colony of Jamestown, Virginia. Though we don't know much about the particulars of their situation once they landed, we do know that they were very likely put to work in tobacco, fi tobacco fields, tobacco, tobacco fields, <laughs> that had uh, recently been established there. So from 1670 to 1715, however, the main transport of slaves was not in fact African peoples, but Native Americans. So anywhere between 24,000 to 51,000 uh, from what we now call the Carolinas alone, north and south, were stolen and shipped to the newly established colonies of what we refer to as New England. Uh, the importation of African peoples, though, as slaves took off in the late 1600s and continued to grow until roughly 1775, when the, the trade started to wane, spiking once again around 1801 to 1825, before uh, trailing off again. Uh, now, the numbers I'm going to list in this section are going to seem kind of small when you hear them, uh, since we have grown up in a world where, you know, there's seven some odd billion people that exist, so, you know, a couple hundred thousand is going to sound like a lot, but the thing is... First off, no amount of people should be enslaved, ever, uh, for any reason, at any point in time. That's just facts. So any number about, above zero is uh, too many people. <laughs> but, you know, also we have to look at these numbers in context. So uh, the populations living around them are going to be proportional to the numbers of people who were brought in. Makes sense. 
So we also have to keep in mind that uh, even if slave traders were bringing in less people into the country during a certain time, people who had been brought over did start to have kids. Uh, And of course, because, you know, birth control wasn't a thing back then other than um, being kicked in the dick real hard or something. Uh, this continued to happen. So eventually it became an official law in 1662 that all children born into bondage on the basis of the mother's position were to also be used for slave labor as they grew up. So when I say uh, 144,500 African peoples were brought in as slaves into America from around 1751 to 1775, we have to remember that the population of the United States at that time was only 2.5 million. So it's, it's proportional. And again, with the birth rates being what they were and with slavery being generational, these populations ballooned so much that, in fact, that in a census given in 1790, it showed that in South Carolina, roughly 43 of the entire population of South Carolina were enslaved African peoples. 43 fucking percent. <laughs> this isn't even mentioned that the total number of enslaved African peoples brought to the Americas during this time ranged anywhere from between 6 to 8 million fucking people. <laughs> I, I just like I'm, I'm sorry for swearing so much. It's just this it's it's fucking enraging. Like to think of that many like six million Jews died in the Holocaust, and we think of that as like a crazy tragedy. Well, because I mean it is, but like we we never hear of like the six to eight million people who were you know brought over as slaves. So there you go. Here's some numbers. Uh, so what did enslaved peoples do then? Uh, farming was the largest of the occupations that enslaved people did, from hoeing to watering to sowing to harvesting. Enslaved peoples pretty much had a hand in all of it. Um, anywhere from vast plantations to smaller farms could have employed enslaved people in the production of goods. It basically just depended on how much you could afford because, uh, like, they were kind of expenses. I mean, buying a, buying a slave was an expensive venture. Um, specifically, tobacco, cotton, rice, and indigo were of particular interest as cash crops, but enslaved peoples could literally be employed in the farming of any crops such as yams, peanuts, okra, watermelon, and the like. Secondarily, many enslaved peoples were employed as service workers inside the plantation owner's house as domestic servants, cooks, maids, butlers, etc. Um, inside cities, enslaved life was slightly different because there's, uh, well, there's no farms in a city, you know, if you've ever been to one. But uh, here slaves could be forced to work for any number of jobs, from smithing to dock workers to servers and restaurants. Uh, what we're looking at is what my mom would call dog work, <laughs> which is to say hard slogging jobs that nobody actually wants to do, but somebody has to do them in order to keep the economy running. So uh, Americans used people who literally had no choice. Uh, they used enslaved people. So forced work already sucks, but seeing as we're stuck in the year of 2020 in capitalist nightmare hell, we have to work or starve and might get the plague and die. Uh, like my old man himself works 70 hour work weeks on a factory floor. How is slavery any different from modern work environment? And here's where I'm going to issue the sensitive content warning again. Um, I'm going to put in the transcript when it ends because, you know, just so you, just so you can skip it. But uh, I'm going to have to issue the warning because uh, we're going to talk about some sensitive con- content here. So enslavement sucks for a number of reasons. First, there's the obvious being forced from your home to a foreign land in despicable conditions to be uh, worked to death by people who do not care about you and knowing that you will never likely get to return or never be free from it. So whole situation sucks from the get-go. But then there's also the particulars of the treatment. So for starters, the journey over was not comfortable, uh, in the slightest. Slaves were carted over to North America on cramped ships, often shackled to the walls with rough iron manacles that left their limbs raw and bleeding and infected. 
If you didn't succumb to disease or any of the other mortal pitfalls of the journey, you would then be brought to market and sold to the highest bidder, having your name and heritage stripped away from you in any way possible. You would be torn from your family, parents, and children, and couples from one another just on the basis of whether or not somebody wanted to purchase just you or you and others in your family. And that would vary based on, you know, if you were a strapping young man or if you looked like a quote-unquote fertile young woman, which I really fucking hate as a phrase. But uh, it was just kind of the way that it was. Uh, from there, your life kind of depended on how benevolent your uh, oppressors were. And as for anybody who's ever had to rely on the benevolence of their boss, they know that that ain't a situation you want to be in. So for many, this meant working for people who would beat them severely for small transgressions, the most familiar punishment being a whip with barbed ends or knots tied into heavy ends of rope so as to cut the skin, leaving scars and potentially getting infected. So there's definitely pictures of you, you can find of that online. Um, it's not necessarily for the faint of heart. I'm, I'm not going to say everybody should go look it up, but if you are curious, they do exist. Um, since enslaved people were not widely considered human at the time by many people, treatment could be essentially whatever it was that the owner wanted to do with them. So this includes uh, sexual activities, unfortunately. It was not uncommon for slave owners to rape their female, female enslaved peoples, resulting in a lot of children that occupied kind of a weird place in society when they grew up. Um, these women were often referred to as fancy ladies which is a great name for a very unfortunate position, and were more often lighter-skinned enslaved women and children. And when I say children, I mean children. Uh, one particular record had a girl of 13 being bought by her oppressor to be used as a sexual outlet. Uh, because, you know, the depths of racism and depravity know no bounds. Great, man. Um, eventually, entire brothels would be set up in some places by oppressors who would earn all of their profits from the forced sexual labor of their enslaved female workers. So, actually, the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, famously, actually, specifically was known to have sexually abused one of his enslaved women under his ownership at the time, a lady by the name of Sally Hemings. His great-great-great-great-great-grandson of this woman, Shannon Lanier, has actually created art about the situation, which that I would highly recommend looking up. The lives these people lived also weren't great, you know, aside from working dawn till dusk doing backbreaking farm work among other jobs, slaves weren't really paid. So they were given meager food, often whatever their owners themselves didn't want to eat, scraps and hard to consume vegetables, meager resources in order to live because enslaved people really didn't have property to themselves, uh, the houses that they lived in were owned by their oppressors, uh, and they had no right to healthcare, education, or religious instruction. So they were forced to abandon much of their culture for a new culture, forced to take on English and French names depending on their oppressors, and uh, were forced to learn new languages imposed on them by them. So the point is that, you know, I could tell you horror stories. I could tell you stories upon stories. I could tell you, you know, individual tales of children being ripped away from their parents and sold to different plantations and eventually dying because of improper care. I could tell you about slaves being shot blank uh, for, you know, Standing up to their overseers over issues like abuse, I could tell you really any number of violent and nonviolent oppression, but really it's 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 it all amounts to the same thing. Slavery is one of the worst things to ever happen in the Americas. We're still feeling the effects of it in black populations in North America, and like it's something that everybody should know about and strive their best to try to lessen the continuing issues of. So, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1862, in which Abraham Lincoln basically was like, yo, slavery bad, all people are people, get over it, uh, you know. But obviously, aggression and systematic oppression towards black Americans didn't stop there, so as the sharecropping era really birthed the blues, though, I'm going to be talking about that more when we talk about the blues. So in the wake of all this, music was something that enslaved people could actually do, and were actually encouraged to do. 
So what are we talking about when we talk about slave musics? Well, we're really talking about a couple different things, you know? Most specifically, we're talking about uh, field haulers and spirituals. But uh, we're also going to be talking about gospel in this episode because it really relates. So this is going to get a little pithy to explain, mainly because all of these musics are very deeply connected to one another. For example, field haulers in many cases were made into spirituals, so a lot of them could have, you know, the same name or words or melody. And technically all gospels are a form of spiritual (laughs) by nature. So uh, because we're going to get into it, hopefully with some luck, hopefully you will know by the end of this what what is the difference between all of them. So we're going to start with a field hauler which probably doesn't sound like what you think it's going to sound like. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, people had parents growing up that would get mad at you for being loud, but I imagine it's a pretty universal experience. Um, But I don't know it's necessarily a universal experience, though, is the reprimand, stop hollering, you're so loud. And uh, surprise, surprise, that's actually not the hollering that we're going to be talking about, but it comes from the same place, you know? So uh, besides the similarity of volume, a field hauler is quite different to a regular hauler. Field haulers were a type of work song. Generally speaking, a work song is pretty much what it sounds like. They're songs that are sung or played, you know, when working. I actually originally thought of putting sea shanties and field haulers in the same episode, but then decided not to because, you know, I figured enslavement probably, you know, deserves its own episode out of respect. So, um, yeah. In the book Looking Up at Down, The Emergence of Blues Culture, William Barlow describes uh, field haulers as... Work songs were generally encouraged by the slave owners, uh, who saw themselves as a means of increasing the slaves' work output and maintaining their morale. For the slaves, however, the nature of their work was punishment, not self-fulfillment. As Frederick Douglass explained, their use of work songs was linked to their resignation uh, of resistance to forced labor. Slaves are generally expected to sing as well as work. A silent slave is not liked by masters or overseers. This may account for the almost constant singing uh, heard in the southern states. I have often been utterly astonished since I came north to find persons who could speak of singing among slaves as evidence of their contentment and happiness. It is impossible to conceive of a greater mistake. Slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. The songs of slaves represent the sorrows of his life, and he is relieved by them only as an aching heart is relieved by its tears. (laughs) At least such is my experience. The composing of work songs, like most African-American folk music, was done spontaneously and collectively. It usually expressed an immediate concern or referred to an event in the lives of slaves. So field haulers were specifically songs sung over fields, sometimes by one person, but often by multiple people. They could be about all sorts of things, but often revolved around folk tales, work, and some were, you know, codes for escape, which is cool and we're going to talk about, and of course, then, religion. But Laura, you told me earlier that enslaved peoples had no right to religion. Now you're saying that they were religious, you dirty, filthy liar who lies. And, like, you're right, I did. It's the situation that no one was under any obligation to provide church services or to teach them any religion. But, uh, however, their owners usually did anyways. Why? Well, we're going to talk about it in a hot minute. But before I do that, we're going to get into more what, you know, a field holler or field call sounds like. So what do they sound like then? Well, first off, they were usually pretty slow. Uh, Again, you're doing this while you're working, so you can't necessarily be jumping all over the place like a crazy person doing, like, vocal acrobatics, because in reality, you're out there hoeing and harvesting and farming is really heavy work. So especially given the hours at which enslaved peoples were expected to work, which is pretty much dawn to dusk. Uh, Like, don't get me wrong, they could be slowed down or sped up depending on the task at hand, but for the most part, they would be steadily and even paced, often to the timing of work events. So they were usually kind of slow and followed a rhythm at you know, at which one would work. And since field work is done in the uh, fields with your hands, instruments weren't really a thing that you could use. 
So uh, enslaved peoples did have instruments, but they would usually be kept at home. But in the fields, uh, you had your voice, and that was pretty much it. Uh, the vocal style was something that in music we call melismatic. So for those who aren't familiar with musical terms, a melisma is uh, when a group of notes is sung to one syllable of text, often in quick succession. So unfortunately, I, I've been having a hard time finding field hollers, specifically recorded ones, because, again, they're old. But uh, I do have an excellent example of melisma from an incredibly uh, talented black performer lined up for you. So we're going to take a listen to that in a second. So you're going to want to listen to specifically how he sings the word well in the very beginning and how he s sings the word need and indeed in the chorus. So here you go. Yeah, I got a woman way over town that's good to me. Oh yeah, say I got a woman way over town good to me. Oh yeah, she give me money when I'm in need. Yeah, she's a kind of friend indeed. I got a woman way over town that's good to me. Oh yeah, she says a loving early in the morning just for me. Oh yeah, she says loving early in the morning just for me. Oh yeah, she says loving just for me. Oh, she loves me so tenderly. I got a woman way over town that's good to me. So those are melismas. Uh, field calls also have what we refer to as a uh, ripsaw tooth melody profile. That is a steep rise followed by a gentle sloping down of the tune and then another rise and then another gentle sloping down through the whole song. And that's kind of how they work. Uh, it's so named for the teeth on a ripsaw, which do the same thing if you look at them. Uh, the cool part about this is the vocal style is that scholars see, still seem to be out on like where it came from originally. Um, they think it's possible that it could just be a regional thing that was established by enslaved people specifically during the time. But then there's also theories that it comes with a line of uh, griot singers. I believe it's called griot. It's G-R-I-O-T. Yeah, so griot singers of West Africa stemming from an originally Islamic heritage tradition, which to me would make a ton of sense because as y'all are going to hear when we eventually get to our Middle Eastern music sections, and particularly Islamic and uh, Persian musics, they do melisma on a whole nother fucking level and it's pretty, pretty cool. But uh, to get back to the matter at hand, uh, field haulers also have something that we discussed last week, which is call and response. So for those who don't remember, call and response is a kind of musical style where the lead singer or head singer will sing a word or phrase and those around them will respond in kind, either repeating that same word or phrase or vocalizing in response. Now, what I didn't tell y'all last week is that call and response, as it relates to the traditions of enslaved peoples, comes strictly from the African musical tradition, which is really cool. Uh, it's found in mainly sub-Saharan African musical traditions, in ritual and festival musics, and is something that the diaspora was able to keep as part of the tradition, which is nice. And although I couldn't find a comprehensive list of the sub-Saharan African countries or ethnic groups that the call and response uh, type of tradition has come from, I did manage to find one from Tlaquin, I believe? 
T-L-O-K-W-E-N-G, Tlokwen, Botswana. So here's that. So what does a field hauler sound like when we consider all of these parts put together? Well, unfortunately, again, uh, since we're looking at music that is so dang old, and of course written by an oppressed racial minority, it's hard to find music examples from the time to actually show you guys. I will say that the Low Maxes, a family of early ethnomusicologists, did do a fair sampling of them, which you can find on the Library of Congress website. Um, that I'm going to try to link in, in the description underneath the transcript, but I wasn't able to actually download any of them, so that kind of sucks. That being said, I did actually manage to find a really good field hauler that was recorded at the Mississippi State Penitentiary in 1947, so here is that. So back to the religious aspect. Uh, religion was mainly heaped on enslaved populations for two reasons. So for one, there was always this narrative of like, these beings are savage and we need to give them religion to make them more like us. Which first of all, that's just wrong. But also throw back to episode one, that's also fucking ethnocentrism and that's just, you know, not right. So we don't do that here. But that was something that they did because that's what they thought, unfortunately. But the second reason why is essentially because it made it easier for enslaved people um, to be controlled 
unfortunately. So we're talking like a real life application of Karl Marx's theory that religion is the opiate of the people type shit. Uh, for the majority of slave owners, nothing was more scary than their slaves rebelling, especially on larger plantations where, depending on the location, there could have been upwards of 40, and f 40 to 50 enslaved people working for them. As such, religion was used as a sort of means to pacify these peoples. Uh, for example, the idea of heaven was used as a means of something to strive for, something to hope for, uh, that if enslaved people worked hard their entire lives and didn't complain, it didn't cause trouble, that they would be able to reap the benefits of it when they one day passed. Uh, stories like Exodus were deliberately downplayed or not at all taught in certain circumstances in the early days to keep them from finding inspiration in it to run away or rise up against their oppressors. So that's not to say that enslaved people never rioted or tried to change the status quo in any way, because they certainly did that, but religion was used as a preventative measure to try to keep that sort of behavior to a minimum. Uh, since enslaved people obviously weren't going to be allowed in churches of their oppressors, because, you know, we can't let them in churches for white people, um, they had to gather in outdoor gatherings or in somebody else's houses for prayer. So that's where you get more of like a small sort of church tradition from in the black community. Uh, this isn't to say that all field haulers were spiritual. Uh, as I stated before, there are many that were also just kind of about normal life stuff. So one of the readings I came across actually went into great depths about a field hauler tradition centered around a man named Jody. This mythical, mythical figure named, named Jody, who was going to get my girl like an asshole. But the paper went into depths about how his name originally started as Joe and the song was originally called Joe de Grinda, which is spelt like Joe, like the name J-O-E, duh, as in D-E. Uh, and then Grinder, that eventually just turned into Jody the Grinder, a mythical scoundrel who ran around trying to get uh, other men's women. So I'm going to play a clip of that right here. common in fact like i would say that the majority of field haulers i found were about things like this man stole my girl or i'm gonna find a woman on the bayou or man life sucks and i'm gonna sing about it or man life doesn't suck so much but i'm still gonna sing about it it's like just regular regular songs for regular ass folk uh song themes actually that we're going to hear eventually turn into blues in a lot of cases so keep an eye out for that but uh, due to the religious bent of some of them, however, uh, some of the most American, uh, famous American spirituals come out of the field hauler tradition, which is where we're going to switch over into spirituals now uh, and gospel, because spirituals and gospel, well, they're uh, really two sides of the same coin. I'm going to explain both of them more in depth, but to just like just to start, remember from the beginning that all gospel songs are technically spiritual, but not every spiritual song is considered a gospel. So what is a spiritual and what does it sound like? Spirituals come out of this tradition of field haulers and extreme religiosity that was foisted upon Afri like enslaved African peoples. So the songs were popular in the last few decades of the 18th century, I believe, leading up to the abolishment of legalized slavery in the 1860s. 
Um, this isn't, of course, to say that spirituals don't exist in the world today and that people aren't making them, but this is where the tradition began. Um, as this genre has to do with forms of Christianity, it's not hard to guess that the title of the genre itself derives from Christianity. Specifically from Ephesians, I believe? Or Ephesians? I believe it's Ephesians. I, I have only read the Bible once in my life. I am so sorry, guys. But from Ephesians 5.19, which says... Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Lovely. Uh, now, much like a lot of field haulers, uh, spirituals were typically sung in a call and response format as well. So with a leader improvising a line of text and a group of singers responding in unison. The vocal style is pretty open, leaving space for a lot of interpretation, but they use a lot of slides and turns. For those who don't know what those are, slides and turns are both methods of getting from one note to the next. Uh, both of them are types of ornamentation, which is just a fancy way of saying methods of how you play the notes, which give them a little bit of character, a little bit of oompapa. Um, a slide is pretty much what it sounds like. It's, uh, it's like when you basically you just slide from one note to the next instead of cautiously going from one note to the next. So a regular passage might be sung. Um, Who's the one who's stretching out his hand? But if you were to do it with slides, it would be like, Who's the one who's stretching out his hand? Like, really, really slidey, which is very fun. It's very soulful. Um, a turn is a little bit more difficult to explain. So a turn is when you have a note and another note slightly higher than it. In between both those notes, you're going to have the turn. Uh, which is you're going to sing the note above the starting note, and then the starting note, and then the note underneath it, and then the starting note again, and then the higher note. Um, I know it sounds a little confusing, so I'm going to play you guys a little sample. I, I can't do this very well, singing-wise. So I got an example of a guy doing it on the saxophone, so here's that. Spirituals uh, were also sometimes used as codified protest songs. So protests against the whole dang institution of slavery, protest against your specific oppressor, or just protest uh, about work. So I'd gather for many of us, we were taught that the Underground Railroad school was a thing, but for those who weren't taught, uh, the Underground Railroad wasn't just a train underground. Although that'd be pretty cool, it, unless you consider a subway, which isn't cool, at least Toronto's subway system isn't cool, but the Underground Railroad was cool, that's... That's what you need to know. Um, essentially what it was, uh, was a hidden network of either enslaved African Americans who had escaped uh, and had managed to free themselves otherwise, uh, and a limited number of other people who would help escaped enslaved people free to, flee to freedom, free to freedom, uh, flee to freedom, often in the northern United States or in Canada. Uh, as the Underground Railroad became more popular in the 1800s, a lot of spirituals would be used as codes or have encoded words in them that would either act as directions or plans for how slaves might escape their plantations and flee for good. Uh, one well-known spiritual used for this was Go Down Moses, used by Harriet Tubman to identify herself to other enslaved people who might want, might want to flee north. So just briefly, for those who don't know who Harriet Tubman is, though, uh, she became a famous abolitionist. She was born into slavery, who then escaped and aided dozens of uh, enslaved peoples. I think as many as like 70 or 75 was said in one of her biographies, so that's pretty cool. So her song, Go Down Moses, sounds something like this. Israel was in Egypt. 
As for content, spirituals are usually uh, spiritual, surprise, surprise, which means that they have a lot to do with Christianity. The tinge of these songs, though, tends to skew more towards sadness because, you know, it sucks being a slave. So sometimes they were known as sorrow songs. Like, you gotta gotta sing your praises out to God mournfully sometimes, but your nasty daily routine. Uh, In these cases, uh, like Go Down Moses, it's kind of crying to be let out of the bonds of slavery comparing to Moses freeing the Hebrews in Egypt, which is pretty cool. Uh, That doesn't mean that all spirituals are necessarily sad, though. Uh, Happy, more upbeat spirituals were often referred to as jubilees or camp songs, named such after the places and occasions that they were enjoyed at, which is nice. Uh, given that spirituals make up the largest portion of the body of music known as American folk music, tricked you, you thought I named all of American folk music last week, but I did not, um, I would hazard to guess that anybody who grew up in North America would know at least one spiritual, even if you didn't know it was a spiritual. So, if you didn't know Go Down Moses, you might know Swing Low Sweet Chariot, which I'm gonna play right here. Swing Low Sweet Chariot Coming for to carry me If any of you play video games, you might remember in Bioshock Infinite, uh, a video game that borrows a lot of historical abolitionist cultural relics, uh, the song that characterizes the city of Columbia that greets you when you first arrive uh, there is called, is a spiritual called Will the Circle Be Unbroken, which I'm going to play right here. There's a better 
And if that doesn't work for you, uh, what about Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, which is also a really popular one. Now, Laurie, you might be saying to yourself, you've mentioned now a couple of times that music by oppressed minority groups tends not to get as popular as stuff produced by the majority. So how about spirituals, bitch? We got you. How did, how did they become the largest component of North American folk music? Black people weren't that oppressed, were they? Mm, you're a lying liar who lies. And like, okay, slow down. Because no, uh, everything I've said up to this point is true. I promise you, uh, slavery sucked. And it's still, like, things still suck. But uh, I, yeah, I did say that, that like, the music of oppressed minorities doesn't tend to go far in a lot of cases, and there's there is some truth to that. Um, music of minorities uh, does tend to do well under circumstances, though. Uh, so it can do well if the minority population becomes large and very pervasive in the culture that they've they've been brought into. Uh, the majority takes interest in their music uh, because you know, music is pretty good at crossing cultural barriers, or it gets whitewashed for mass consumption. And the second and third ones of that are kind of what happened to spirituals. So from the Library of Congress, uh, the publication of collections of spirituals in the 1860s started to arouse a broader interest in spirituals. In the 1870s, the creation of the Jubilee Singers, a chorus consisting of former slaves from the Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, sparked an international interest in the musical form. So there was a growing interest in America at that time. Uh, why this is, we can't really say. Why can't anybody say that mass tastes change at certain points? Like, sometimes there are things, sometimes there aren't things, and this is one of these things that we don't actually know if there is a thing or not. It could be, you know, the uncommon spectacle of seeing black performers. Maybe white Christians were taken by the display of Christianity that they saw from these uh, quote-unquote savages. Maybe it's because white people in American history just kind of love stealing art made by minorities and turn it into their own thing so as to divorce it from the person of color origin, because that's a thing that definitely still happens. Um, maybe it's just because spirituals slap harder than Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Frankly, I don't know. Um, I couldn't find an article actually on this specifically, so I generally don't know. I am so sorry. Uh, either way, though, after a while, white composers such as Harry T. Burley did come on the scene and start arranging spirituals in ways more associated with Western art music traditions. So this is why some of the above examples that I gave you actually sounded more or less like what we would like, expect from Western art music and less from a spiritual. Uh, but how is gospel related to this? So what is gospel? What does gospel sound like? And why am I asking you guys all these questions? Well, spirituals are kind of like gospel's mama. 
So spirituals came before and helped enslaved peoples deal with the shitty situations that they were in and gospel came afterwards. When I was looking this up, there were like a ton of different guesses uh, and kind of half assertions as to when we can say gospel really started. Some will say the second the American Civil War ended. Some will say the late 1800s, uh, but there was there was definitely not very academic sources that I found that said like the 1970s, which is way off. Um, but if we want to look at the development of modern day gospel music, we really have to look at one man, just just one man named Thomas Dorsey uh, in the 1940s. So Thomas A. Dorsey, referred to as the father of modern gospel, uh, was born on Canada Day or the 1st of July for non-Canadians in 1899 in Via Rica in the state of Georgia. He was born to a sharecropping family, which I will explain more about sharecropping in next week's episode, don't worry. Um, but his father was a, both a farmer and a local minister, and also taught black children at a one-room schoolhouse where Thomas would accompany him for lessons. So, growing up, he was always big into music, which, like, hell yeah, I feel you, man. And was lucky enough, actually, to have access to an organ, which is really something, given that his family was broker than a vase in a bouncy house full of, like, blitz seven-year-olds. Um... Thomas was still young enough at, at, in his time that in his youth he would have heard many spirituals growing up and even some sung by previously enslaved peoples, as well as a moaning style of singing, which really became characteristic of the blues and kind of sounds like this. in the Protestant church due to his family ties, he also heard tons of Protestant hymns growing up as well as shape note singing or sacred harp music, uh, which is a type of religious music established by white Protestants in the New England region that does some really funky stuff with like ascribing syllables and shapes to notes and uh, where all parts of the choir sit or stand in sections making a square facing one another directly culminating in like a really, really giant cloud of sound. So that sounds something like this.
After a big move to Atlanta, he dropped out of school at the fourth grade at just 12 years old and started attending shows, eventually selling concessions at a nearby theater. Um, at some point, he taught himself how to read shape music, which is which is great. Um, something I've never managed to do, so good on him. In 1919, he moved to Chicago by himself, and in uh, 1920, he copyrighted his first song called If You Don't Believe I'm Leaving, You Can Count the Days I'm Gone, and that sounds like this. so sure I'll always stay but this time I'm on my way so if you don't believe I'm leaving just count the days I'm gone you gave me your word but even so true I know since you're the kind who shares your heart you're always gonna find us far apart now you're gonna listen to that and go Laura this isn't gospel music and you're right man it isn't the dude started his career in early jazz and blues music which is kind of to be expected given the area of the world that he grew up in uh, he didn't even start writing religious music for another two years uh, af- until after Fateful Encounter, after hearing somebody play uh, at a National Baptist convention in 1921. So Dorsey was excited by what he was hearing at the convention, improvised rhythms, allowing singers to really pour their hearts out musically, and he was so inspired that he decided that this is what indeed he was going to do with the rest of his life. So in 1922, he copyrights his first religious song, which I actually couldn't find a clip of. I'm so sorry about that. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't as much money to be made in it, so he continued to work on blues while growing his religiosity, all the while climbing to, to the top to become Chicago's top blues and composers, and eventually a music arranger at Paramount Records at fucking 24 years old. I'm currently 24 years old, and I'm just laying here drinking flat room temperature root beer and making a podcast episode. Dudes out here just fucking killing the game, man. Just hashtag goals. But by... 1928, however, the dude was depressed as hell and contemplating suicide, so talk about a mood shift, eh? He, uh, found faith again in 1928, though, when he was at a church, and the minister preaching, I guess, pulled a a live serpent from his throat, apparently prompting his immediate recovery, so you can, um, take that as you will, I guess. I fucking wish depression worked like that, you know? Just, ah, having a really bad week, let me just find a preacher and get him to stick his hand down my throat no big deal um but regardless of what actually happened dorsey was more revved than ever to compose religious musics after going back to blues for some time because money he made a big splash at the national baptist convention in 1930 when singer willie made ford smith sang his song if you see my savior which sounds something like this Of a neighbor 
crowd was so fucking pumped that they asked her to sing it twice more actually like she sang it and then they're like again gotta do it again <laughs> and uh, dorsey was able to sell four thousand copies of his song after this he performed a choir uh no he formed a choir not performed a choir he formed a choir at uh ebenezer baptist church at which the pastor was really open to his style and dorsey and the church's musical director theodore fry trained their first gospel blues choir so Hell yeah, man. This is the first time that the clapping and stamping that you see in a lot of gospel performances today actually started, because previously, black churches sought acclaim from performing Western classical art music like Beethoven and Mozart, which if you've ever performed any Western classical that isn't opera, uh, you know it's nothing to have fun to. Uh, when you perform a lot of classical music, you're just kind of expected to stand and solemn and not really move a bunch, and depending on the song, you don't even smile, so... You know, it's not that great. At least it's not not in the stampy clappy way. So, in addition to the gospels he wrote, he uh, also originally started composing some spirituals. So that's that's really nice. Though a lot of his music wasn't so well received at first because of its bluesy influence and liveliness, many African Americans were now uh, moving into more northern states as part of the Great Migration, which is like a basically a migration of um, African Americans from the southern United States that happened for approximately I want to say fifty years. 50 or 60 years, which brought roughly 6 million African Americans from the rural South into cities in the North, and they brought their taste for blues music with them, prompting the flourishing of Dorsey's music. So, there you go. That's Thomas Dorsey and uh, his invention of the entire fucking genre. So we have this dude that single-handedly invented a genre of music, but how does gospel actually sound now? So, we got bits and bites of it, you know, what it sounded like before he started training his choir, but, you know, what does it sound like afterwards? So, while many gospel songs do tend to keep in the tradition of call and response, uh, the response now tends to be a little bit more organized, uh, functioning on a four-part harmony system, meaning that there are sopranos, altos, and tenors, and basses, so sopranos are the highest, altos are second highest, tenors are like a mid-range, and then basses are, are the bottom. And they all sing notes that complement one another in the choir, which is nice. Blues notes, so notes that lower the third, fifth, and seventh intervals on a regular scale, so a scale usually has... Seven intervals, eight if you count the full octave, so C, uh, C, D, E, F, G, uh, A, B, C. Um, yeah, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, yeah, yeah, that's how a scale works. <laughs> it's been a hot minute. But they lower the third, fifth, and seventh notes of a regular scale. So um, I'm going to play you guys a little bit of an example of a blues scale in just a second, but the guy playing the example is only going to use the pentatonic version of the scale, meaning that he's only going to use five notes of it. And then you're going to hear the lowered version of those five notes, which is going to be the blues scale. So that's going to be right here. So we have the minor pentatonic. And then we have the blues scale. I'll play a little example of each one so you can really hear the difference. 
So first of all is the minor pentatonic. And as I said, this has a very clean and simple sound. So that was the minor pentatonic scale. And if we just add that one note, that flat five, turning it into the blues scale, it can sound very different. Gospel songs also tended to be more high energy than spirituals, so you can stamp and clap uh, to slow music, but the upbeat pace of gospel music was why stamping and cla clapping was brought onto the scene. So gospel, even in its more somber moments, does tend to be a pretty rip-roaring good time. Uh, something that you can't help to move to, allowing for a kind of ecstatic prayer where one is encouraged to engage with their God through music and movement at the same time. So if we want to listen to approximately what modern gospel sounds like, uh, here is an example. That's going to be all for this week on Just a Music Podcast. So I hope you've heard something new. I hope you've heard something that you like. And if you haven't, there's always next week where we're actually going to kick it down a few notches and talk about the blues, baby. Just in time for midterm projects. So I'm going to be, I'm going to need it at that point. In the meantime, though, if uh, one of y'all would like to suggest a topic, I would love nothing more than to answer your musical questions and talk about topics that interest you guys in music. So you can feel free to drop me a line at justamusicpodcast at gmail.com. So thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye!